Yeah, real people, real stories. This is what we know well. Yeah, this is our truth today with Baron DeBell. Time to get it started. Joining us now is Tony Armstrong Jr., a former high school teacher, LGBTQ activist, producer of lesbian music events, publisher of the magazine Hotwire, the Journal of Women's Music and Culture, one of the founding members of the We Want the Land Coalition, and founder of Blast by Lesbian and Straight Together, Women of the Palm Beaches. Wow, you're a busy woman. Welcome, Tony. Hi. Let's start with a little background about you. Tell us about yourself. Uh, I think you got a lot of it in the intro there. I've been an activist for many years. Came out in college in 1973 when I was a freshman. Joined the brand new Gay People's Alliance that was happening at Illinois State in the wake of Stonewall and never looked back. We've been friends for a very long time and I know you have a deep love for your mother. How did she impact your ability to be yourself? It was funny because my mom was also a lesbian, but of the generation where that was not something that was supported, accepted. You couldn't find anybody else if you didn't go to a mafia-run bar or drag bar. So it was very confusing for her. And when I came out, uh, she had a pretty bad reaction to it and took us about a year to resolve it. And it resolved because she got back together with a woman she had been with before. I was not going to kill you <laughs> after this horrible year we just had. And within a year after that, she had quit her job in Chicago. And this was in the 70s and moved to California to be with Lois, who she was with until Lois died. Oh, so you had kind of a coming out again journey together. We did. And then it was really pretty smooth sailing, except every time I was able to take a leap forward, it just scared her. She was afraid I would lose my job. She was afraid I would get beaten up, uh, that our family would completely reject me. All the things that, of course, her generation, gay people really had to deal with. But she was really, really proud and really, you know, backed my play even when she was scared. And of course, we had these giant tequila slammer parties at my house, <laughs> hundreds of women, and she loved to come from California and participate in all of that. <laughs> and when we went to the women's music festivals, I think she settled down quite a bit because she looked around and she saw essentially normal looking, healthy women of all types, races, uh, coming from all over the country and sometimes international, very talented women, many of them professional women. And all of this really was a reality check for her about where the whole lesbian and gay movement was going. It, after Stonewall, it really was a game changer. Well, let's move on to music. How much of an impact did music have on your life? Fortunately for me, the Lesbian Women's Music Festival started up in the mid-70s. I was able to get in on pretty much from the beginning. Those events blossomed to have literally thousands and thousands of music albums, so many music festivals that you couldn't even attend them all in one year. In the 80s and 90s, there were just dozens every year. And they were very, very lesbian oriented, not necessarily lesbian only, but that was the dominant audience. And that was who the female performers were playing to. And fortunately, the producers of these festivals had this vision that it shouldn't just be women on the stage. It should also be women doing the sound and the lights and the business and the sign language interpreting and every single part of it. Growing up from my early 20s, 
on in that environment made me feel really like I could do anything because everyone around me was doing everything. The music itself, of course, very sustaining. Anybody who's into music understands that it's emotional. And it also led to the creation of Hotwire magazine, which we published out of Chicago for 10 years, uh, 30 issues. We had at any given time about 40 volunteers doing the magazine because all of us had other full-time jobs. And it focused on not just the music, but also the other parts of the lesbian and feminist culture, the films, the bookstores, the radio shows, the writing. Alison Bechtel had her first magazine cover with Hotwire. And of course, now she's Tony Award winning Broadway play, you know, all these really cool and talented women, most of them lesbians, all of them feminists grew up together. Now, as we're all kind of aging out, it's fun to look back. You know, as much as people were saying, oh, women's music is dead in the 90s, it's like, here we are in 2019, and women are still making albums, and festivals are still happening. The Michigan Women's Festival ended four years ago, and you and your co-founders have come together to reacquire that same land. Is this a reboot of the Women's Music Festival? What's different? Well, it's not a revival of the Michigan Festival. That went on for 40 years and then definitively ended. I mean, it had a final one. It was really quite the blowout, a wonderful final festival. There were many of us, though, who have spent decades of Augusts on that land. It's about 650 acres, pristine wilderness. It backs up to the Manistee National Forest. It's never been logged. It's never been fracked. It's never been built on. So in this time when... Woman-hating is really ramping up again really blatantly in the U.S. and in other countries as well. And in the time when human beings seem determined to ruin every single acre on the planet and kill every animal, it felt really important to save these acres. And so that's what we did. We set out to create a coalition of women who don't necessarily agree with each other on anything other than this land ought to be saved for women, for girls, forever. A 501c3 was created. We got a conservation easement from Michigan. It means we pay less taxes on it. And also, even if we, for some reason, can't hold this land, it is safe. It can't be developed. We don't have corporate support. We don't have rich backers. We are just women of all ages who are trying to save this land for the use of women and girls. And now this summer, for the first time, we've been able to get it good enough so that we can welcome women back home. And there's going to be five different events on the land in July and in August. Each one is six days. Each one has a different theme. Each one's run by a different group. I can't wait to go back home. Sounds like an amazing coalition. How can folks help out or get information about the upcoming events? There's a website, www.tlc.org. We want the land coalition, www.tlc.org, that really has like every single thing you would ever want to know on that website about the history, about the policies and the politics and what's happening with conservation easement and the five different events and anyone who wants to get involved. Incredible organization. Great cause for women and girls. We want the Land Coalition at www.tlc.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Tony gives us some history on the gay movement in education and where we are today. That's all on Our Truth Today. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? 
Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her walk miles a day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at ourtruth.today and conversationswith.net. And we're back with Tony Armstrong Jr., modern-day lesbian pioneer on Our Truth Today. I'm Farron DeBell. Tony, let's talk about your work with education. You lived in Chicago most of your life, and you taught at a high school. You were out at school, no? Well, we're, we're going to say yes, but it, it, that's difficult. I got outed at school. It okay. wasn't my choice, and because I was teaching special ed, it was a very, very precarious situation. There were no laws for a long time protecting teachers, and I could have easily just gotten fired immediately, but I didn't. It was a really a don't ask, don't tell situation. In the early 90s, Kevin Jennings in Massachusetts started the whole Gay-Straight Alliance movement and the movement to really insist on equality and visibility within the K-12 through schools, which is, in my opinion, one of the hugest tasks that our generation has ever taken on. Sure, we'll just have the schools be all supportive of gay and lesbian students and teachers. Sure, why not? Well, none of the schools wanted that, needless to say. There was another teacher from my school who also got involved with what was to become Gliss in Chicago. And we both just looked at each other and said, hey, I'll out you, you out me. Our moment is now. Let's go for it. Gliss in Chicago took root with a truly incredible, incredible steering committee. Sometimes you just get dealt a royal flush. People had a whole different set of skills and interests and tolerance for fear and tolerance for grunt work. And we just went for it, you know, with no funding externally, no grants, no nothing like that. Patricia Tommaso made it her personal mission to take on the Chicago Public School System Teachers Union. Really, she should get the credit for getting domestic partnership benefits and protections for Chicago public school teachers, which is the third biggest school system in the in the nation. So a small group of us took on the development of the Gay-Straight Alliances within the schools, which was at once exhilarating and fun and hilarious and also terrifying because the administrators pretty uniformly were absolutely opposed. And so the different students in, within the city and within the suburbs, um, we got together twice a year at DePaul University for youth leadership summits. And the goal of those wasn't to have some big conference with lots of youth. It was to find the, the ones that would grow up to be Tracy Bame, 
you know, and get them together when they're 14, 15, 16. So they were already doing things within their schools. Uh, one had a column in a newspaper and another one had gotten a display case for uh, Gay and Lesbian History Month in October. And when we got the kids all together and they were like, oh, wait, I didn't even think we could do that. And hey, how about that? <laughs> you know, sometimes we help the students um, connect with lawyers when the administrators of their schools really needed to understand that the Federal Equal Access Act did not permit them to say they would not have a GSA. Across the board, the GSAs were really heavily supported by straight female students. And um, I can remember one year at our school where all of the gay and lesbian kids were too scared to be in the yearbook picture. And all the straight girl students came out with our big rainbow flag and we were in the yearbook anyway. I remember, I think it was almost 20 years ago now, we were doing a press conference together at a city high school with their Gay Straight Alliance. In the beginning, it was fully supported by local administration, but at some point during the day, word came down from high above that this wasn't going to be allowed. Do you remember that? I do, and, and it wasn't just one. We had at the school where I taught, we were hosting the all-GSA Chicagoland annual dance, and our dance was threatened to be picketed and the picketers had called the media. We managed to talk down the main organizer and they pulled the plug and the media came anyway and the students brought out pizza to the media. We've come a long way. Do you think high school students today are comfortable or feel safe in their own skin? And 50 years after Stonewall, do they understand what came before them to get to this point? I don't think they're all so comfortable. I think that we're in a time of incredible backlash again. In er certain urban areas that made a lot of progress, there is really a lot of more freedom and less fear for the students. But anyone who's in an area that's very conservative, those students are not safe. They do not feel comfortable at all. We really still have our work cut out for us, I think, in supporting and getting the word out. For the ones who have been able to reap the benefits of what earlier generations did. And that's earlier than me and you. When I was their age, I didn't care about history either. I didn't care about who the four people were who did anything. I just wanted to do and I wanted to live my life and I wanted to date girls and get on with it, you know. So I don't blame them at all. I feel like most people aren't interested in history until they get significantly older Every now and again, you find a young person who really gets it, that if they learn what happened before, it's really cool, and they can build on that and not have to reinvent certain wheels. But for the most part, go, 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 young people. Follow your vision. Tony, you're a remarkable woman. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you taking time out for us today on Our Truth Today. Oh, anytime. I love all the work that you do, always and forever.